52, verses 1 through 12. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust, arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourself for nothing. You shall be redeemed without money. My people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed continually every day. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall, shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, your waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. Depart, depart. Go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, be clean. You who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Thank you, Tracy. So I'm beginning a new series um, from Scripture that is going to focus on God's bigger plans, you know, every so often we have life that comes up this close to us and uh, we don't have a real good sense of perspective. We need to back up and see the bigger picture. And then as we see the bigger picture, then um, depend on God to show us where we fit in that bigger picture. So let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, we uh, thank you for the preciousness of your word, Lord God, that um, you speak to us, and uh, we're just eminently grateful, Lord God, that you, the master of the universe, would... God Almighty, that you would speak to us, Lord, who are frail and mortal, and uh, we thank you, Lord, for how you speak to us through these passages. We thank you, Lord, for what you have in mind as we launch into this series. We pray, Lord God, by faith, we trust you, Lord, for those riches, rich insights that you have for each one of us, Lord, to receive as we look into these passages in your word together, and we ask, Lord God, not only for insights that would be part of our mind, 
and heart, but also, Lord God, that you would bring about decisive transformation in our life, Lord, as we look into your word and feed on it and, and uh, have it become part of us. So we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Like some of you, I have the, uh, the joy of periodically waking up a, uh, a young fellow who doesn't want to wake up. And, um, you know, if you're a parent or grandparent, you know, the tricks that one has to employ in order to uh, somehow bring the darling boy from a state of semi-consciousness into a state of consciousness. And uh, part of the picture, at least for me, is a gentle bokeh tov, good morning. And... Um, then more often than not, it's Boker Tov. And, uh, and then there is uh, uh, using um, the hands to communicate something to the inert body. And uh, sometimes, sometimes I even have to get so radical that I pray. <laughs> That's radical. Lord, I, I have no wisdom, no idea what to do with this. Uh, breathing, sleeping mass of protoplasm in front of me here. Um, but eventually he wakes and, um, and gets on with the program. And you know, the truth is, we are like those kids. There are times when we are oblivious and clueless to God's speaking to us. And um, because God is merciful, then what happens is that he speaks to us once and, and we hear something flying by us and we ignore it because we are too busy and preoccupied and... and um, have other things we need to do or want to do, and then the Lord speaks to us again. You know, it's been said that when everything goes well, God speaks to us in a whisper, but when things become difficult, then we hear the voice of God shouting to get our attention. Um, by the way, I, I don't believe in the uh, bigger, in the um, two-by-four theory that it's God's good pleasure to get our attention by using two-by-fours. Uh, I really do believe that God's heart is to speak to us heart-to-heart. Heart. That somehow as we grow and as we mature in our relationship with God, what happens is that the uh, wax factory in our ears seems to diminish and we are somehow able to hear the voice of God a bit more clearly than we used to. But in any event, part of what happens is that typically God has to speak to us repetitively from different angles and sometimes with a great deal of emphasis and urgency. 
And that is, by the way, what you find here in this passage. And it's expressed in a couple of different ways. First of all, you have the repetition of, awake, awake. By the way, you'll find that quite a bit in these later chapters of Isaiah where you have repetition of a command. The other piece of that is that you have a number of other commands that are given. And when you put them all together, the message is one of urgency. Hello, are you listening? I'm trying to get your attention. Awake, awake, clothe, shake off, rise up, sit, free yourself. You get the flow here. God is trying to get the attention of Israel that is going to be restored. And by the way, you you may realize that in the beginning of Isaiah, much of Isaiah's preaching was change or you die. A great deal of warning um, you're rebelling against God, and, and I've been patient, and I'm sick to death of your rebellion, and judgment is about to come. But in, in these chapters, what we have mostly is the Lord speaking to Isaiah, who is looking through a prophetic telescope and seeing events of restoration coming about in the nation of Israel. And by the way, this for us as a Messianic Jewish community is hugely important for a couple of reasons. One is we want to know that we are on God's team. I hope you know that you are on God's team, right? You're not sure. Yes? Amen? Okay. And the fact that we are a Messianic Jewish congregation simply means, well, among other things, means that we see in Scripture the fact that God is committed to Israel and that He is not done with the nation and that He has glorious plans for the people. And we are basically, in some way, a giant billboard that says, hello, God is committed to Israel. And we say that to the Jewish community where a lot of times people in the Jewish community, the traditional community, have come into a place where they think that what happens with them happens because the nation is resilient and smart and clever and so on and so forth. Now, I went to a Support Israel function um, about a year ago, and this was just as all kinds of missiles were raining down upon this little place called Sderot, just outside of the lion's den in Gaza. And the basic message, with a little bit of God tucked in there some, somewhere, was we are resilient. You know, We've endured for thousands of years, and these missiles are not going to put us away. So our message is to the traditional Jewish community and to the body of Messiah, to the church, that is often convinced that God has done with Israel. And we have the chutzpah, the gall, to say, look, the good book says something totally different. So this passage is hugely important for us because of the bigger vision, but also because of how it applies for each one of us individually. 
You know, we need to understand the macro, the big picture. We also need to understand the micro, which means, God, where do I fit? What am I supposed to do? Do I just sit here and occupy a seat? Or um, do, you, do you have specific work that is part of your overall picture for what you want to do with the nation of Israel? And I want to challenge everybody here, by the way, that God has a call on your life. God has a call on your life. God has a purpose for you. God has gifted you with spiritual gifts and experience and knowledge. God wants all of that to be properly invested in the service and expansion of his kingdom. And so at some point, the Lord says to us, to you, to me, awake, wake up. Enough of this um, sitting in the dust. We'll talk about this in just a minute here. Some of the commands, from our perspective, really don't make a whole lot of sense. What does it mean to clothe yourself with strength? I mean, it's not as if you go to Macy's or one of the other places and you say, you know, I, I want uh, this outfit because it has a whole bunch of strength attached to it. What does it mean to clothe yourself with strength? Well, uh, the language here assumes that you know that God has already given you strength. You know, a lot of times we quetch and cry out to God and say, Lord, I'm weary, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I've run out of strength. You give me all these things to do and I can't do them, so what's up with that? And the message that God gives us that we have a hard time getting our arms around is the fact that somehow in our relationship with Him, strength is already there. I love the story of Gideon. You know, he is hiding, um, threshing wheat in, in the uh, wine press, which was a classic example of someone who was gutless, scared out of his mind, which we all get to from time to time, right? No, I'm the only one who... Thank you. And so the Lord f comes to him and says, Oh, mighty man of valor. Ish gibor chayl. It's like, okay, are you talking to me? <laughs> and uh, Gideon has this very brief conversation with God at the end of which the Lord says, Go in your strength and save the nation. Okay. Where do I do? How do I do it? The issue here simply is that God has that available for us. It's there. And part of the picture is us learning to stretch by faith and receiving from God and investing it. Serving God, folks, is not difficult. Serving God is impossible. Okay? When you get that, 
you're freed of all the, um, all the guilt, Messianic Jewish guilt trip, etc., because you realize that the strength has to be something that is already there and you need to reach it and take it. Part of the picture then is that we realize that our life and what we do is really not about us. You know, we just stop and think about it. We are self-consumed. We're self-consumed. What do I do? How do I do it? Okay, I have a list of things I need to get done. I check them off. Okay, I feel good. I got them done. I got them done. And uh, where is God? Well, he's somewhere, somewhere in the corner there. And so huge part of all this requires a basic readjustment of our priorities and our thinking to where we realize that our life is really not about us. It's about the Lord. And that what we need, He will somehow provide. Now, I would say that for most of us on some level, this is a steep learning curve. We often don't tend to view God as the one who provides. So it's hard for us to look at this command. And by the way, I'm extending this from, from the nation to us as individuals who are God's people. I hope that's not too much of a stretch. And part of the picture simply is to learn to view life through a different set of, of glasses. Instead of me and what am I doing to God and what God is doing. And so because of that, then we look at this command that is given here. And it makes some sense. Okay, what does it mean? Then the next command is put on garments of splendor. Now, ladies, you may be able to understand that. For me, this is like flying over in Mach 15 uh, because I don't go shopping. It's, you know, I, I, I break out in hives at the store. Um so what does it mean? What does garments of praise mean? Or garments of splendor? Uh, is that to impress everybody that, that you are classy and, and uh, you have exquisite taste? Um, again, it's not about us. The challenge here is to put on garments of splendor. Why? Because we represent God. We're God's servants. And, and this, by the way, I, I hope no one is making a connection between that and the so-called prosperity teaching, you know, that you have blasted 
from different media. I'm God's kid and God loves me. God has to give me all kinds of goodies so that I can impress everybody. No. The, the biblical, the correct biblical teaching of prosperity means that God will give me everything I need in order to carry out my assignment. My assignment. Not what I have sat down and strategized and come up with a five-year plan. Garments of splendor, not about us. It's all about Him. A good example of that, we see, for example, with the clothes of the high priest. Now, again, I know that's a stretch. Um, A, because we're 2,000 plus years away. B, because... You know, we read our favorite book, Leviticus, and we don't know quite how to connect with it and blood and gore and incense and so on. Um, and But remember that underneath all of that are basic spiritual principles that apply to Aaron, that apply to us. So, you know, if you're tempted to do typology and, and look at the colors of, of Aaron's uh, threads and, and the gold and silver, uh, gold and, and the purple, purple being color of royalty, reminding us of Yeshua and so on. That's really missing the point. There's a basic principle here. Let me read to you a couple of verses from Exodus 28, 1 to 2. Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites along with his sons so that they may serve me as priests? Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him glory and beauty or uh, and splendor or dignity and honor. And you say, okay, why did Aaron need to have glorious and beautiful and kind of garments when he went to worship God. I mean, you and I, I assume none of us here goes to the closet and pulls out our Shabbat go-to-service meetings and, and puts it on in order to go pray, right? Or do you? But there's a basic principle here. Remember that Aaron, the priest, what is the priest? The priest is the one who, who, who is a representative between God and man, both as an intercessor, someone who speaks to God about the people and speaks to people about God. He has to be he has to have clothes of glory and splendor. Why? Because it has to draw attention not to him, but to the one that he represents. Again, folks, this is so such a challenge for us. If someone were to ask you who you are, what would you say? You probably would list your job descriptions. Uh, or the things you like to do, how many of us would say, who, I, who am I? I am a son or daughter of God, and I'm God's servant. 
that helps, at least for me, bring some degree of sanity. Because there are times when my ability to carry out my job is kind of wobbly, and I'm not very successful, and if my security is based on that, I tank. But if my security is based on, on who God is and my relationship with, to Him and my identity as a son of God and His servant, that doesn't change. That's consistent. In fact, you know what? I'm expecting, and it does, grow and become stronger. And yes, we are filled with insecurities, every single one of us. We, we go through self-examination and self-flagellation and, you know, the, the old shtick about I should have done this, I could have done this, my bad, uh, etc. And so we draw attention to ourselves. Instead of saying, okay, I messed up here. I'm inclined to mess up. God is bigger than my mess. God transcends my failures, my sin, my weaknesses, all of that. And once we get that, we understand the fact that we represent God to this messed up world. And it doesn't take a nuclear physicist or a nuclear chemist, and Joanna's not here, to look at the world and see that things are not in grand old shape. This is not to depress your younger, younger guys who, who are growing up and saying, oh, okay. But that's reality. Look around you. And, and the Lord hasn't taken us out of it. He places us smack dab in it for us to be his representatives. And because of that, he expects that we would wear the garments of beauty and splendor and dignity that he gives us. Why? Because he's a holy God. He expects us to be holy. Later on in this chapter, it speaks about the, the need of us who serve God to move away from things that defile us. Again, it's one of these um, repetitive commands. Move away, move away. You who carry the things of God. And I hope, I ho sincerely hope is my prayer, that each one of us has some kind of grasp of the fact that we, you and I, in our situations, in our, wherever it is that we are, in our jobs, in our schools, in our families, in our neighborhoods, that we are conveyors that we, con that, that we carry the word of God in us. And as Michael likes to put it, sometimes it, it, it's spoken without words and sometimes it comes out verbally. The Lord expects us to have some basic sense of that. 
that you and I have been set apart. And that's part of the message at, at the end of verse 1. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Although in the Tanakh, in, in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, uncircumcised usually was code word for Gentile. That's not what it's speaking here. It's speaking about defilement. You see that in Revelation. At the end of time, when everything is done, everything is put together, and you have the New Jerusalem, this, this amazing reality where God dwells with people. We're told that the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. That's the end of, of the story. And I hope that part of your reality is to say, God, that's where I want to go. That's where I want to go. Yeah, and we all deal with facts on the ground. We all have bad days. You know, um, a few weeks ago, I went to get my license renewed, driver's license. And uh, it took me three hours. And by the end of the third hour, I still didn't have it. And part of it was my foolishness. Part of it was the foolishness of, my, of the system. And uh, I walked out spitting bullets <laughs> and saying all kinds of words that are not in the Bible for which I had to repent. Why? Because, folks, I simply want... And I hope this is your desire as well. I want to move closer and closer to the Lord. And part of the picture in moving closer to Him means that we abhor that which is defiled. It so happened I came back the next day and uh, I walked in and I saw this character right here, Steve. And we had a wonderful time. And then at that point I, I realized that maybe, just maybe, God was somehow still sovereign. But you know, part of, part of the picture here is that God expects us who are his representatives to move away from the schmutz, the defilement of the world. Look at verse 2. Shake off the dust. Rise up. Sit, and I believe it's sit enthroned, O Jerusalem, free yourself from the chains on your neck. And sometimes we are just content to sit in the dust. You know what I'm talking about? You go through periods of time where you feel like everything is coming against you. And no, you're not paranoid. It just seems to be that way. <laughs> and so you sit in the dust. And by the way, scripturally, sitting in the dust is an expression of mourning and being lowly. It's also not a particularly clean state of being sitting in the dust and when you think about it God's best is not for us to sit in the dust 
But part of it is that we're not willing to engage with him when we're sitting in the dust. We're quite content to say, Lord, thank you, leave me alone. I want to be sitting in the dust. Um, and the Lord challenges us. That's, that's the beauty, folks. I, I hope you have experienced that in your life. That when you are absolutely rotten, somehow the Lord pours out his chesed upon you. And you feel like two cents Chinese money. You really feel ashamed. You say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. And yeah, I feel like somewhere between the slug and the snail, but um, the Lord just pours out his love to us, not because this is cheap grace, but because his chesed, his love leads us to repentance. And frees us frees us of all the mind games we play sometimes. You know, I, uh, uh, what I did was rotten. Uh, yeah, it was awful. Yeah, it was absolutely horrendous. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that, etc. And we get ourselves bound up in all of this. And, and the Word of God says that we have been called for freedom. It is for freedom that Messiah set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened by the yoke of slavery. What happens sometimes is that we allow chains to be around our neck for one reason or another. Especially our unbelief because we're not willing to trust God. And the Lord doesn't come and beat us over the head for our unbelief. He just draws us and challenges us to repent of it and invite his deliverance and say, Lord, would you please come with your chain cutters and get rid of those chains? That's part of the message that, that the Lord has for a restored Israel, but also for us. Again, and, and I keep coming back to this, and if it feels like I am jotting one note, well, that's because I am. <laughs> Our identity is in the Lord, folks. Not because whether we're successful and do things well or whether we do things badly. Our identity is in the Lord. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2, but because of his great love, for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Messiah, even when we're dead in transgression. And God raised us, raised us with Messiah and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, people refer to this as positional teaching, and I've never been able to understand that. And I think I'm finally, after 50 years of being a believer, I'm finally beginning to understand some of this. What does it mean to be seated with Messiah? Well, it's again a sense of identification. Who am I? I am a child, a king, I'm his servant. And we learn 
we learn then to recognize that because we know who God is, we're identified with Him, then we realize that He is working. That He's working and that He is very much aware of our life circumstances. You know, He speaks here to Israel and says, to Israel, I'm well aware of the fact that you were because of your own sin and stupidity, you ended up in, in exile. I'm aware of that, and I have a real hard time with that. In, in essence, what God is saying here, what's up with this? Why are my people in bondage instead of free? Verse 6, all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Why? Because it doesn't speak well about God's reputation when you and I are tied up in knots. In fact, it speaks poorly. Scripture, and particularly the Torah, refers to that as God's name. In other words, His reputation. God's reputation looks awful if the world looks at us and sees that we're no different. And I'm sorry to say that's much of the case. If you were to take the statistics for divorce, for child abuse, and, and so on, from the society, society at large and compare it to believers, there would not be a heck of a lot of difference. And God is concerned about what happens with us for a couple of reasons. First of all, because how it impacts him and then how it impacts us. Because if we demonstrate the fact that we are wearing the clothes of splendor that he's given us, then people are attracted not so much to us, but to him. Ezekiel 36, the portion before that which we recite each Shabbat, the beginning of the Torah service, chapter 36, has the following statements. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the, the sovereign Lord says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but this, the sake of my holy name. I will show the holiness of my great name. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. What does that mean in plain English? It means that as we learn to invite God to come into all these places in our life, you know, the closets that have bats and skeletons in them? Uh, I guess I'm the only one who has one of those. <laughs> as we invite God to come in and clean house and bring his chain cutters and, and, and cut the uh, chains around our neck so that we freed up. It brings glory to him. It also happens to be wonderful for us. And sometimes it's hard to see that 
But one of the reasons that we celebrate the Moadim, the special festivals, is to remember what God did in the past. Amen. Scripture refers to that as his rolling up his sleeves and, and getting to work. A lot of references in here and also in Exodus to God's hand being outstretched. That means that he's very caring. It also means that he's showing his strength. That's what he wants to do, folks. And, and I know you're probably listening to this and saying, okay, none of this really connects with me. Well, I mean, let me encourage you to simply take what's in here and say, God, open my eyes. Open my eyes. So that I get it. So I understand what you're saying here, not just to Israel, but to me, and give me the faith that I need to be able to embrace it and live by it. Because as that happens in us, then we are poster children to the world of who God is. And then what happens? We develop beautiful feet. I know you're looking at me as if to say, huh? How beautiful are the feet of those on the mountains who bring good news? Why beautiful? Well, it's not because they're, they're exquisitely shaped and fashioned. It's because when they bring the message of good news, they're beautiful when they bring it to someone who desperately needs to hear the good news. Again, you look at society around and you say, who wants it? Nobody is interested. Nobody wants it. Everybody is committed to doing their own thing. But our life is a life of faith, folks. It's based on the things that we have seen God do in the past, the first fruits, which is why we celebrate the Moadim to remind us. And, and then faith that God will carry the same kind of power and work in our life and the life of people around us. If we understand something about who God is, and what he's doing in our life, trust me, it will overflow and it will impact the people who are around us. And there are times when it doesn't seem to be reality, but we have to be like Abraham, who trusted that God calls into reality the things that are currently not reality. If you are not a satisfied customer, you have nothing to convey. You know, outreach, sharing the good news, then becomes nothing more than a sales pitch. You know, been there, done that, not interested. But being God's servant means that we understand who the Lord is. We have, we have learned to walk with Him. 
we're learning continually. And we learn, we're learning to then take what he says here and embrace it and live by it. And no, life doesn't get easy overnight. But we know one basic fact, and with this I, need to, I want to finish. You will not leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. I believe that that's a promise that is specifically geared and designed for those who are interested in taking those steps of faith, who are interested in following God, who are interested in serving Him. It's not given for, for those who are, or for us who, when we are disinterested in doing God's will and are committed to doing our, our will and our agenda. These words are committed, are given to us so that we have the confidence that as we engage in the work of the kingdom of God, wherever it is that we are, that we will have the confidence that God is going before us and he's protecting our rear. That helps with sanity. I want to leave that with you. That the Lord doesn't, doesn't just throw you out there and said, sink or swim. But he, he pulls us out of our comfort zone and then says, I'm going to be before you, I'm going to be behind you. Let's pray. Lord, um, we thank you for your infinite patience with us. We thank you, Lord, that you see us as we are. And uh, you know our sin, our weakness, our failures. And you're greater than all of that. Thank you, Lord God, in fact, that you take our sin and our failures and our weakness, and that you weave us into this tapestry that you work in our life. And Lord God, we desire then to take what you give us, Lord, and to follow by faith, to grow in our willingness and ability to trust you as we step out of our comfort zone and as we learn to be available and reach out, Lord, with the good news. Lord, we wanted that it would be said about us how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We pray, Lord, that you would recruit us into the service of your kingdom. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.